You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the podcast. PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the podcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. This is Monique Whitney. I am the Executive Director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, and this is the podcast. We are so excited today. Today is a special opportunity for our listeners to get to meet some of the PUT board and to listen in on one of the typical conversations that the board has. A lot of times in our work here at PUT, and we're talking to different members, we take questions about what happens at the board level and how do we come up with some of our ideas and and how do we get to do some of the things that we do and the answer very simply is it comes from the board members the board members are our genius and our inspiration they are the hardest working people that i know out there not just running their pharmacies but also advocating educating they are tireless individuals and put would not be nearly the organization it is without them. So it's my great pleasure today to introduce our listeners to our board members. I'd like to start with our board member in Kansas, Van. Van, say hello. Hi, I'm Van Coble. I'm a retired pharmacist that owned a pharmacy for more than 20 years and have a great deal of interest in making PBMs making them do what they should do instead of what they're Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Van. And thanks for being here. We're really happy to have you. I'm also really pleased to welcome back Lauren from Illinois, another board member. Lauren was on our very first pod. I think that's the first podcast, right, Lauren? Very first one? I think so. With Steve Moore, it was right after the Pisney uh, rally in New York. Yes. Yes, that's it. So say hi and maybe introduce yourself again. Hi, I'm Lauren Young. I am an owner of three pharmacies in central Illinois, and I'm a second-generation pharmacy owner. And thanks for being here, Lauren. It's great to have you back. And then the other person who was with us on our premiere episode is our president, Scott. Scott, say hello and maybe introduce yourself also. Hi, guys. Scott Newman out of Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, Glad to be here again. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. And I think we're going we're gonna to be leading off with you today because of some of the exciting things that you've been up to. And then finally, so many people ask about this person, and many, many people do know this person, but it is such a privilege to introduce our Vice President, Don Butterfield, out of Florida. Don, say hello. Uh, that's a pretty funny introduction, and I don't know if I'm flattered or I uh, should be terrified, but thank you. Um, I'm, I'm John Butterfield, and um, I was uh, dumb enough to uh, have a startup uh, pharmacy right after the good old days, apparently, in 2012, and I own West Cocoa Pharmacy and Compounding, and I call fighting PBMs and educating on PBMs my semi- full-time, part-time, no-paid job. 
right? I think that's a really good description for, for just about every person on this call. And we are so appreciative that you could take the time to be on the call. We're appreciative that all of you could take the time to be on the call because as we're recording this, so the first thing is it's, it's the evening. So for just about every single person on this show tonight, you're coming in after work. So you have worked a full day at your pharmacy and now we're recording this and it's not just a full day at your pharmacy. It's something like week six of the coronavirus pandemic. And as we're recording this, there's lots and lots and lots of conversation about what the future is going to look like. And of course, the future of pharmacy was already one of those topics that was forever in question. And now, you know, boom, COVID, right? So... But that said, so we had some things we were going to talk about today, but it just so happens that something kind of exciting happened for one of our board members. So Scott, let me turn it over to you to, you know, just sort of talk with all of us here about what happened today. So um, just when you think that you win a good battle, you find out that the enemy is still very much working behind the scenes to turn it around for themselves. And we had legislation passed in both our House and our Senate um, in our, our last session. And the governor uh, approved or signed off on the House bill, which was completely identical to the Senate bill. But for some reason, the governor sent an amendment to the Senate bill back for today's session and he sent i believe like 147 amendments in total and they were reviewing voting on them today well come to find out that there was an amendment sent to senate bill 251 and that came from the governor's office and it kind of caught us by surprise and so christina our executive director with pha reached out to the governor's staff to come to find out that cvs had been working the governor's office trying to get some language changed in the bill that would basically make them immune from some of the network um, requirements of the, the new bill. Um, and it would have put, uh, the reason why they decided to address the Senate bill was because the House bill was patroned by Keith Hodges, who is a small pharmacy owner um, and also um, pretty influential in the House, and his bill uh, would have been easily defended by himself had they tried to attack it, even though it was identical to the Senate bill. Our patron on the Senate side it was, is relatively new to uh, the Senate, and it was one of the first bills that he patroned. But he was very much interested in doing so because he has a special needs child who has been a victim of PBM shenanigans. And so he was very excited to take it on. So we brought him up to speed. He patroned it and it went through just like the house bill did and on to the governor. Well, we contacted the governor's office and they're like, well, we were told by the CVS people that the patron Senator was supportive of the amendment. So we reached out to him, come to find out they lied to the governor's office, telling them that the, he had actually agreed with the amendment when, in fact, they never contacted him, nor did they reach out or send him any communication about what they were trying to do. And so when we notified the governor's office of this, the governor's office says, oh, my. Well, obviously, if it was done with that type of intention, then, you know, we don't support the amendment. Well, it's already through the process at this point. So. We got the governor's office to agree 
when they picked the Senate, senator to introduce the bill, and I, I'm not sure if this happened today or not because I was busy and I didn't get a chance to watch it actually unfold, but um, they said that before they actually read the bill that the governor was going to put a statement in it that said we no longer support this amendment so that they could you know, obviously vote against it. So whether that happened or not, I, I haven't heard, but that was the idea of what was going to go forward. And so they did a vote today, and uh, the vote got killed, rejected. Somehow, the PCMA and, and CVS lobby got them to bring it up a second time. Now, the vote was close the first time, but the second time it got rejected again, thankfully. So all this happened very quickly today and moments notice. But the, uh, the lesson to learn, one, is um, I, I've kind of bragged a little bit, but I have a very close relationship with my state senator, and I was text messaging him the entire time, giving him information about what was going on from Christina, and it ended up uh, allowing him to influence a couple of his colleagues to vote against it and have it rejected again. And it was a very close vote. I think it like the rejection, uh, it was rejected by like 19 to 21 or something like that. So. Now it goes on to the back to the governor to sign, and we just will stay on top of him to make sure that their intention is to sign. Because just when you think that you have legislation going through that shouldn't be a problem, and everybody agreed on in the same party, here they are in the background again trying to to screw it up, and came very close to to having screwed it up. It would have created so much ambiguity between the two bills that no one would have enforced it. How'd you find out that they lied? I'm curious about that. Because the governor's office told Christina what uh, what their conversations with them were and their justification for doing the, you know, we were like, why are you amending this? We haven't spoken to you about amending this. And they're like, oh, the CVS people told me that everybody was cool with it. And she's like, what? <laughs> she, wow. So she investigated a little bit to find out that, in fact, they had not even discussed it with anybody. In fact, they hadn't reached out to us. They haven't reached out to the patron senator or any of the sponsors. Man, but I told the governor's so shocking, office that right? everybody that was supportive of it. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. So for you, you've been pretty busy all day. You've been texting. You've been you know talking to your oh, senator. Yeah. You've been talking to Christina. Is that is that standard during this time of year or when something like this comes up? I mean, do you do that a lot or is, that, is this just a one off? Um, it's happened before. I wouldn't say it's a, a common thing, but when it's necessary, that's kind of what you do. Don, I think you have a lot of experience when it comes to this kind of thing. Anything you want to say or, you know, add to the conversation? Well, actually, I'd love to say that in Florida, we were even this close to, you know, having some kind of last minute um, goof up like that. But what Scott, I mean, kudos to you and having a relationship with your legislator. This reminds me of New York, where everything sailed through unanimously. And then the governor, who was even on board with the whole thing the year before, all of a sudden vetoes the bill. So it, it, it shows to the depth, and the fact that they're lying is, um, when they start doing that in states, they're doing it a lot, but at first they don't really know how bad it is. When they start doing that in states, that's when it's, um, you know, their power reign is coming to an end. Because mm -hmm. then the lawmakers, um, like in Georgia, you know, they don't trust them. They don't want to, they don't even want to talk with them because they know 
Um, you know, what, what does Senator Rapert say? These, these are the biggest double dealing backstabbing people, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, I've ever dealt with in politics, and that's saying a lot. So, um, we weren't even anywhere really in Florida, but um, I'm excited about about Virginia getting to where it's gotten, and it's kind of interesting to me that they one big reason was the flip of the um, legislature to uh, to Democrat from Republican. And I'm not saying that I think anytime there's a big change like that, even if it's, you know, Democrat to Republican, Republican to the Democrat, whatever. What did I say it was? It, it went to Democrat. Anyway, so when there's a big change, I think the new people in power and in leadership are more willing, just because they've been silenced for so long, um, to be open to a lot of these types of ideas that those that have allowed this to go on for so long just, um, you know, just go along to get along. So congrats, mm -hmm. Scott. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And what's interesting is that, you know, so PUT's a nonprofit. We, we advocate, we do not lobby. And we have seen over the years that the issue of PBM abuse, when, when you can finally get that message across the net to the people who need to understand that this is happening, we've seen over and over, it's, it's really a nonpartisan issue, or you could say it's a bipartisan issue, but it really doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. New York is a democratic state. Virginia is a democratic state. Um, Illinois is now a democratic state, right? Is that right, Lauren? Yes, we are. Democratic state with a governor that has been in office about 16 months and our speaker of the house, which is also Democrat, has been in power for like 40 years. And, <laughs> and that said, what's interesting about that is that it was like a year and a half ago, two years ago, Illinois switched over to complete managed care, which, which just, you know, uh, was uh, it's awful. You can go ahead awful. and say it. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. destructive <laughs> at every level. And now, you know, we can see there's some rolling back. But the 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 senator who's been behind this, Senator Menar, I want to say he's Republican, but I'm actually not sure if that's right. He's Democrat. He's Democrat. Okay, see, that's he, not right. He actually used to work <laughs> for the Senate uh, Democrats. And so he has experience on the, you know, inside of sure. the legislative council and he's been in office since 2012 i believe but he is definitely someone who gets our mission gets our problems and we reached out to him the week that this was all really starting to blow up in illinois so like the second week of march and we encouraged him to have the governor release our critical access pharmacy funds so that we would be able to get compensated for dispensing fees that had been slashed whenever Illinois changed over to managed care Medicaid. Yeah. So, and and as we're you know as we're talking about this, one of the things I'm thinking about is that anyone listening to this would probably think, oh well, it's you know the Democrats are the ones that are picking this up and running with it, but that's not necessarily the case. One of our biggest champions is Jason Rapert, and he is definitely not a Democrat, unless I'm wrong, which apparently I have been. <laughs> so. No, he's, he's Republican. Yeah, he's, it just, it, it's one of those issues. It, it, it just so transcends politics that, 
you know, you would think that it's just a common sense issue and that once people start to understand it, that they would get past it and want to do something about it. But you still can have governmental dysfunction, uh, so which is why it's not always a good thing to just leave it at, you know, at the level of the government, right? That's why we do so much education. But I think a, a really good poster child for that would be Florida. Right, Don? Uh, well, I was just kind of thinking back on um, one of the speeches that our guy, and I say our guy because he's one of us, thank goodness we have a pharmacist and who also was a pharmacy owner. I guess he signed his stores over to his wife, so there's no kind of conflict or something. But um, so I remember him saying specifically when it got heated, because you know the the other side does not want to have him on those committees where they have hearings and they're on the hot seat. And I'll never forget he said, "Well, congratulations to you all, because you all have done something since I've been here. I've never seen in that." That's you have bipartisan, you know, consensus about this issue, and I've never seen that. And it was just kind of funny because um, that was the truth. I mean, they were, you know, everybody was on the same side. It didn't matter. So it is a bipartisan issue. Florida is, so it's kind of opposite of, you know, uh, Illinois, where your speaker can be there until they die type of thing, which is really set up for corruption. Um, and I'm not saying he's corrupt, but that's how Massachusetts operated for quite many years. But um, but what, what the, one of the issues, though, with term limits, and we're finding out this to be the case in Florida, is when you have term limits and you have um, people kind of coming and going, then who becomes really, really powerful are the staffers. And they're sort of proud of that power. So they can sort of create some subterfuge and confuse some issues and they can do some things and they can make themselves out to be the expert on you know we can't expect the legislature legislators to go to the capitol and know everything about paving and water quality and um vaping and pharmacy benefit managers and insurance and life insurance so they do rely on those staffers and the problem is if you have a couple of the staffers who have for whatever reason bought into all of the PBM talking points that are now so stale it's hard to even I mean they're just almost laughable at this point that's sort of where we are in Florida we are having that issue so we're having to kind of deal with that the good news is there were a lot of new people this year that were all they didn't know any better <laughs> and they were all small business people or you know they championed small business so Hopefully, we're going to kind of see a turn in this COVID, you know, situation where everybody's acknowledging the the contributions that that small business does have in our economy and and how many jobs that 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 entails and what you know small pharmacies have done to secure products and all that for their patients. I'm hoping that we'll just have like a renewed respect. We'll see. Um, and it's probably up to us to, you know, get out from behind the bench and make sure that we're getting these stories out there to remind people about that. But we have a long way to go in Florida. Yeah, That's all I, I think COVID, say about that. COVID's going to be, it's already turned out to be a kind of equalizer. I mean, it's definitely shown just about every part of our country where our weaknesses are. You know, so we thought, you know, we had, and rightfully so, we thought we had a great healthcare system. We thought we had 
you know, uh, great economy. And, and for all that we were saying, you know, small business is the economic engine of the country. It kind of felt like with the way the stock market was going that that was more just lip service. And now we're finding out that no, small business really is the engine. And, and that never becomes more clear than when small business ends up getting shut down. So um, Dan, I'd love to get your perspective. So you're in Kansas. So you're, uh, you're closer to Lauren in the middle of the country. And Kansas, I think, is also a democratic state. Is that right? No, we're definitely a hugely red state. We're not even close to being purple. Um, Note to self, I, I need to really study my maps. <laughs> I, I would agree with Don in saying that when you have somebody in power for a long period of time, it becomes comfortable for lobbyists to go in and talk to that person and sell them, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, a bucket of bull manure. And that's what we have going on in Kansas. And it, we have a lot of uh, what I would, oh, I would call Washington politics, a lot of tit for tat. It's just like this uh, around right before Easter, uh, we, we had a, you know, the governor had issued an executive order closing everything that was non-essential and some Republicans come in. We've got a Democratic governor. Some of the more powerful Republicans came in and through a legislative committee tried to say that she was anti-religion and that she couldn't close churches for Easter, even though we had shown that in one of our hotspots for COVID in the Kansas City area, church meetings had been problematic and that's where the virus had started spreading from. And so we went through that. It went to the Kansas Supreme Court who issued, upheld the governor's executive order on Saturday before Easter. And so it, it gets to be a real mess. We need some changes very badly. Uh, that's kind of where I would set at with this. We've worked really hard in Kansas to pass PBM legislation, but there again, the lobbyists come in and talk to the people in power, and we have hard timings to the floor, is just what it amounts to. What's been your participation as far as your pharmacists over there in Kansas and in, you know, getting active? Scott, you know, started off by talking about his relationship with his senator and, you know, the texting and, and just really being there side by side with his association executive director. What's what's happening over as far as, you know, your area goes? I think we have some really good participation. Um, I participated in a Southeast Kansas legislative dinner that's held in November. Our, our session runs for 90 days, and it starts in the second week of January and usually closes in the first week of May, and then there's a couple of times off during that time frame. They have that, and we have had good participation by legislators and by pharmacists that can make it. And we've had some other dinners around, but it has not been quite as good. Uh, 
you know, realistically, we probably have some good relationships built up in the western part of the state, but our state is relatively large and our capital is towards the eastern side. And it's really hard for people that live in western Kansas to find a relief pharmacist and to go to Topeka to support things because once you get out in the boonies of Kansas, west of Wichita, uh, you may drive 50 miles before you run run into another pharmacy. So it it puts us at a little bit of a disadvantage and it puts uh, the eastern part of the state, puts a little bit more on our shoulders. But uh, everybody needs to work no matter where they're at to get more of your young pharmacist involved in the political process. Uh, I was kind of late getting into it. And at, at where I'm at now, I wished I would have been involved a whole lot sooner. Yeah, I'm sure, Lauren, you could have something to say about that. I think you're our, you may be our youngest board member. Uh, certainly, you're one of our most politically savvy. Are you still watching? I guess you're not now because, Lauren, just for people who are listening, Lauren, Lauren and Don both are two people on the board who <laughs> can find and watch any government hearing <laughs> anywhere in this country <laughs> if it's related to I'm... the topic of PBMs. <laughs> I was a little bummed that I didn't know about Virginia's vote today. Otherwise, I absolutely would have been watching it live. I watched Minnesota's Senate debate earlier this week about their prescription drug pricing bill. And I've watched many Florida committee sessions. And so it's interesting to me the different dynamics that each state has as we've already talked about illinois legislature is obviously a little different than other states and so when i'm watching illinois i know exactly who the big players are i know what their passion projects are so if there's an education bill coming up i know that senator Bernard is usually very present and involved in that because he reworked our entire school funding reform formula in Illinois. And so it's interesting to see what different state legislators are picking up on and doing, not just on the prescription drug pricing, but other things, because really, whenever you see them talking in other committees, that way you can kind of tell other pharmacists how they can best talk to these legislators. As I mentioned before, with Senator Bernard and education, this managed care problem that we're having with underwater reimbursements, well, it's costing the state boatloads of money in spread pricing. And that's money that our state desperately needs, especially during COVID. And so that is one thing that we're trying to get legislators to listen to, that this blank check that they're writing to MCOs is killing them in the end of the budget process. So Lauren, what cracks me up about Illinois, because uh, I was a warrior kind of in your state after our legislative session two years ago didn't do anything and I was still on adrenaline and wanted to do something <laughs> and that's when you guys were getting all jazzed. And I said, well, let me like, you know, kind of hang out with you all and learn, you know, grassroots with you guys. 
But um, it, it just cracked me up that they, they didn't want – I mean, this is how government think goes. No, we can't solve the problem. We can't recognize the problem, actually. So what we're going to do is we're going to essentially pay for the same thing twice. So we're going to pay the MCOs who are paying the PBMs, who are supposedly paying the pharmacies, but they're ripping the pharmacies off. So then it's easier to go to the state. And we're going to – I mean, don't be surprised when we do this in Florida, even though our lobbyists were like, what? I said, well, this is what they understand. When you ask for money – that's like that's like um, normal conversation in state houses. So when you ask for you know an earmark fund for X Y Z, um, then it's just a matter of fighting that over other people asking for earmarks. But it was funny to me that they're paying for the same thing in essence twice in in Illinois. Well, who would you say, Lauren or Van or, or Scott? I, mean, I thought that Georgia had a good hearing, a couple mm-hmm. good hearings, and um, I personally, my kind of favorite, if we wanted to have like a Oscar of you know speeches and and whatnot this year, was still Max Wise in uh, mm-hmm. Kentucky, and I think the committees that, that he spoke in front of those were were really inspiring. But I did watch a lot of Minnesota, too, this year that I've, I've never really kind of had them on our radar. But Deb has been able to do quite a bit just by herself pretty much up there. So that's been interesting. And then also Utah. The Benjamin group, Jolly. You know, mm-hmm. Yes. So a great group in Utah. And then now we've, you know, we've been watching a little bit on the sidelines of Oklahoma. But now mm-hmm. since we have a board member from Oklahoma, we're kind of getting more of the inside scoop on that. So that's been kind of interesting. Oh, absolutely. I think a couple other states that really kind of broke out this year in terms of PBM reform or just kind of getting them out more in the forefront was Wisconsin. I know there was like a six-hour hearing one day. And, I mean, I listened to that whole entire thing, and it was amazing to watch that from just a just kind of watching it and seeing what we were not doing in our committee hearings in Illinois and other states. I mean, they had different advocacy groups that we would have never thought to bring in there. The audit assistance group that many pharmacies use, PASS, it was awesome to see them stand up as a vendor and a partner really with pharmacies. You know, the audit assistance program didn't need to come in there and say audits are bad because obviously audits are their livelihood. They they could have been, taken the other approach, but they saw how it kills independent pharmacies. And so they stood up there in front of those representatives and they told them about the retaliatory nature of audits that they're seeing and how they're coming in fast and furious, especially when pharmacists and owners are standing up there trying to get their legislators' attention, they're backing that up. It's not just the pharmacy owners, you know, quote-unquote, complaining or whining to their legislators about, oh, this is not fair, this big bad company's treating me bad. There's other vendors that are seeing it and saying, whoa, we, we need to pump the brakes here. This is getting way out of hand. And one thing you said earlier, Don, uh, my dad, who's a pharmacist, sat in on a meeting three years ago with a multi-store pharmacy owner that many of you guys know from Illinois named Dave. And he was in this meeting 
with three of the Senate leadership people in Illinois. And, you know, these legislators hear all the time requests for money from their constituents. And so they're sitting at this table and the Senate minority leader, Brady, said, so how much money are you guys asking for? And both my dad and Dave said, oh, we don't need to ask for money. We just need you to distribute it fairly. We're not asking for one penny, but don't you dare put all this pot in the PBM's pocket anymore. Give us our fair share and that's it. The money, the state's already spending the money. Just you know, redistribute same, it correctly. That same pharmacy owner and some of us were talking on our tech support group, <laughs> that's what I call it, <laughs> and then saying, you know, in the olden days, which wasn't very long ago, pharmacists never would have gotten, it wouldn't matter what it was, wouldn't have taken government money. You know, like the PPP loan and everything, they would have said, ah, you know, we'll, we'll handle this, you know, we'll make it through, let somebody else kind of do that. And now everybody is like, we've been so screwed over that not only do we deserve this and we need it, but this is just a finger in the dike of the tsunami that's going to happen if if things don't quickly change. So, but I thought that was funny too because I've I, I kind of felt the same way. I thought I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed to tell my parents, you know, that I, I applied mm-hmm. for the for the PPP loan, but you know they they understood and um, I you know I got over it, but. It's just something that we're not used, you know, used to doing. But that's how government thinks. So maybe we've been thinking this wrong the entire time. I was talking to Monique today about the new initiative that we're going to have on invoicing all government plans that have not, quote unquote, made us whole. However, that works. <laughs> so, and if we're not, you know, getting twelve dollars a prescription, okay, then we're going to invoice them because we refuse to be on the front line of this pandemic, have to hire more people to do delivery and all of that, and you know, just something something should happen. And we're talking about the Small Business Administration. We've gone about this the wrong way. Instead of just, oh no, we'll we'll be fine. We should have asked for higher reimbursements this entire time, because that's how every other industry works. Small business gets earmarked stuff. They get preferential mm-hmm. treatment. So not only are we not getting preferential treatment, the government is allowing the the huge corporations to financially exploit us. So, you know, maybe we should just like, you know, really turn tail and and think about this a whole different way because after this coronavirus, you know, kind of calms down a little bit, nobody will forget it, hopefully, and they'll say, who was it that made hand, hand sanitizer? Who was it that went to the ends of the earth to make, make sure masks were available to people? Who were the people in the community that kind of connected hospital people and nurses and doctor's offices and patients and, and all of that? It, it wasn't your CVS, Walgreens, Walmart pharmacist, I can tell you that. It was us. So we deserve we deserve to be t- treated as such, and I think I think we've allowed ourselves not to be. Scott, do you want to weigh in on that? What's your opinion? Yeah, I just because you, you, both of you guys have actually hit on something that I've been thinking about since our bills passed. 
It was made very clear and still is with our national organizations that we can't just go to our legislators and say, hey, we need more money. It's got to be about the patient. And Don and I have wholeheartedly disagreed with this from day one. And, you know, even in, with my relationship with our lobbyists in Virginia and our executive director, I couldn't get anywhere with them on this point. And in fact, they shot down two of my ideas that I said we do not need to compromise on were the first two ideas to compromise. And they involved our payment structure. And so now that we have wins, and I'm going to speak specifically for Virginia, why are we not thinking or shouldn't we be thinking about the next legislative session and the ammunition after COVID or during COVID that we take into this next legislative session should 100% be about our reimbursement and our survival. I think that we finally are in a position where we need to use that or we have that to be able to use to make our argument that we've got the data showing where we're getting screwed. We've got the data showing where pharmacies are closing. We've also got the data showing how we stepped up during this pandemic. Where is our fair reimbursement? Oh, it's still with the PBMs? Take it back from them. Make them give it to us in a fair way. We're not asking for more. You know, we're asking for our right to profit just like anybody else. We should not be subsidizing the government. We should not be subsidizing our communities just to take care of them. Scott, I, I would agree with you 100%. We've been subsidizing various government entities and PBMs for a long time. And I have been just to totally frustrated with the tack that people have taken about, oh, well, you're going to get money from medication management or medication therapy management or from whatever type of cognitive service that you're going to provide at this point in time. That's ludicrous. Why do pharmacies have $250,000, $350,000 worth of inventory in drugs if you can't make money on that? When you're making 1% or 2% or 5% even on a prescription, that's not even close to what other people would expect to make uh, on products such is that. I was actually talking to Don and Monique about that, Van. Then I just want to emphasize your point. What other business would you have them put out, you know, 1200 1500 three, four, sometimes up to $100,000 for a drug only to have to wait four to five weeks for payment to make 1% on that? That's not what a small business or a large business is expected to do. Anybody who puts out that type of money is sitting on it for a period of time deserves to be able to make money on that money. I would agree 100% with that. Our leaders in pharmacy are giving away the farm again. And for the 40 years plus that I've been in pharmacy, I've observed that. And we are where we're at now because our leaders in pharmacy were not working in reality. And, you know, with, when you don't, when you own a business and you're out here every day struggling with that, it is a problem. And there's nobody 
that I can think of that owns a business in my state that can sit down and make enough money doing counseling and get paid by the same insurance companies or by the PBMs, make enough money to live on. That's not even a real concept. I have a question. I'm curious with the, you know, we've had this horrendous past now. Uh, we have this pandemic, which is happening. And for the first few weeks of it around the rest of the world, you know, what we heard was the only thing that's open are grocery stores and pharmacies, grocery stores and pharmacies. And I, you know, I know for myself that was really burned on my mind. And I think it was burned on the minds of many, many, many people in this country. We're at a turning point now. And I'm just, I'm curious what you think or what you, what you see must happen as we deal with this, this uh, crisis and as we move into the future, like, what is pharmacy going to have to do in order to keep the ground that I, I think we have taken at least back in terms of people's minds? You know, pharmacies are now, I think, back in people's minds in a way that they haven't been in the past. But what's going to have to happen now as we move into this new normal? Monique, I think, I think it's up to us to keep ringing that bell and reminding people. I mean, that's been our problem. We're so busy helping patients that our whole entire profession's been hijacked from us for money and profit from these profiteering companies. And my counselor put it this way to me today. He said, you know, if you look at it, they're actually not doing a bad job. They're doing their job, which is, you know, maximizing revenue. He said it's not maybe not moral or it's different than your morality and, and values. And I kind of thought about that and thought, that's true. They are doing an excellent job at, you know, revenue producing and making us look, you know, bad somehow. So it, it still goes back to us to to hammer at home. Even Starbucks didn't put pharmacists on the list of, of essential personnel that they would, I don't know, give how, I don't know what kind of deal they were giving the healthcare professionals. And Costco, which, which has pharmacies and pharmacists, still isn't acknowledging them as essential personnel. So we've got a huge just professional PR problem in mm -hmm. general that I don't know if that's a, a PUT thing, an NCPA thing, an APHA thing, or all of us together, but, you know, we've got to focus on that, and we've got to invest in it, and we have to do it because literally we've been overlooked. We've been taken for granted, and we've been overlooked, and we need to take that back. I completely agree, Don, 100%. I think that it's crazy that pharmacists are always ranked in one of the top, definitely top five, I want to say it's usually top two or three most trusted professions. And anyone who has spent more than two minutes in a pharmacy, especially an independent pharmacy, knows that the pharmacist and the pharmacy staff are viewed as much more than just a medical or healthcare resource. Sometimes we are the only person that that patient speaks to that day. And so you're helping them with a multitude of issues, not just their medical issues. And so it's amazing to see that Walgreens today came out with a coupon that was for first responders and didn't include pharmacists as well. I thought of the Costco thing also. It's just 
crazy that our own wow. pharmacies are not looking to utilize the healthcare resource that pharmacists provide. And it really makes me mad when the media during a healthcare crisis can't find a pharmacist to talk to about these issues. We know how to break things down because we counsel patients every day. We know how to talk to a senior citizen and then a college student and then a soccer mom and then a dad. You know how to talk to multiple different age groups and break it down so they're able to understand the information as well as they need to. Yeah, and in this crisis, we've, we've served as a whole different informational source. I, you guys know I've been doing my Facebook lives, and it started off me being kind of upset, so I did it. But then the patient said, hey, thank you for that information. And, you know, because they were talking about generic Plaquenil, they didn't understand that you can use it even though it's not FDA approved for that. So we explained that. And, and we're the resource that people are going to, hey, where do you get tested? I said, I don't know, but I will find out. And, and we're social workers <laughs> on another level of, of trying to connect people with resources and primary care physicians. We're kind of like the portal of entry pretty much into the, you know, local community healthcare system in general. And we've played a huge role with this pandemic. When the CDC hinted that they were going to say that we all need to wear masks, I told my staff, okay, we're wearing masks. They weren't happy. Well, why should we wear masks? And why should we be doing this curbside service? I said, well, if anything, we're going to do it because we're going to show the community just how serious this is. Because if we don't do this, then they won't be taking this seriously either. Because all they can think is, I went to the pharmacy and they were, you know, not wearing a mask or gloves. And if nothing else, we served as kind of like the role model of how one does what the government in a pandemic is trying to ask of people so we don't spread this type of disease. Yeah, I blame the, uh, I blame the co commoditization of pharmacy on largely pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens because you walk in and their spaces, you know, are the least clinical, right? So you walk in and immediately it's like Easter egg candy and makeup and liquor and stuff like that, right? And then all the way, way in the back, if you can find it, you'll get to the pharmacy eventually. Any community pharmacy that I've ever been in, and I've been in many, many, many in this country and uh, in other countries, as a matter of fact, they're hallowed, they're clinical. There's that space where you you talk to your pharmacist about the medication you're taking and, and it's a it is a trusted conversation. So I'm never surprised when I see that pharmacists rank second or third, really only to nurses, which you know should say something about the level of care that the unsung heroes I think in our industry provide. But yeah, I would say that in terms of top of mind awareness, I think while people respect their pharmacists, when it comes to like, when you think about who your first responders are, people haven't necessarily thought about pharmacists until now, which is too bad because another thing that pharmacies were doing in this pandemic, they're still doing at their own expense were things like curbside delivery, uh, literally cutting holes in the walls of their pharmacy to create drive up spaces for patients to be able to get their medicines. And, and these are all things that they, they didn't have to do it, but they chose to do it. And they chose to do it because that's who they are. They are fundamentally at their core care providers. That's what all of you are. And it's frustrating, but I, I, I agree, you know, as someone who actually, you know, works in professional public relations and has for a long time, I would say the industry does need 
a, a pretty good makeover. And it's something I think that is doable, but it's, it's going to take some investment of time and resources for sure. So we, I think we have like 67 other things that we could certainly talk about. I mean, I, I know I started off with a list and we've been talking for quite a while at this point. I think what would be a great thing for us to wrap up our conversation tonight on, and, and by the way, we're going to do this again. So for everyone who's listening and, you know, wonders, this is actually what our conversations at PUT sound like. And we love to have others come in and join us. So from time to time, we set up membership opportunities for more about that in the future. But as we close out, we have a project that we are launching. It went live on our website today, our website, truthrx.org, and that is the Invoice Project. And Don, this was your brainchild. I wondered if you could just take a couple of minutes and tell us about the project. Right. So there used to be a term, Van probably remembers this, we're that old. It was called pharmacies are made whole. In other words, and I think it started with Medicaid. It, the, the whole thing was we trust that you guys just need to fulfill the needs of the patient and we'll worry about billing later. We will make you whole later. Well, that being made whole is not even on the PBM radar screen. To underpay us is, again, they're doing their job for revenue generation. So, But again, in this pandemic, I will be darned if I'm going to lose money on prescriptions for government plans that I am subsidizing, one, in my taxes, and then two, on the front lines of healthcare, putting my life, the, the lives of my technicians at risk. So we are sending invoices to, and by the way, we're not supposed to do this, so we'll see how quickly I get nasty grams. But at this point, I, I, I don't even know what to do because I can't afford to keep filling prescriptions at a loss for TRICARE, for the federal employee plan, for the Medicaid HMO plan in Florida. A lot of us are talking about, let's just turn in our, our Medicaid provider numbers. That way, we don't have to bill for the Medicaid HMOs because if we're going to make under a dollar or even negative one dollar on prescriptions, you can't make up for that in volume. So we thought what we would do to educate the unpayer, who probably has no idea, and the unpayer are people like the Office of Management and Budget in the government that oversees all the federal employees, like the people that work in farm forestry and the judges and the FDA and the DEA and the FBI and all the federal government employees, all that goes through ultimately CBS, Caremark. And then TRICARE, as we know, goes through Express Scripts. And as we're all finding out now, with the integration of Cigna and Express Scripts, they basically have said, wow, we didn't know that you could screw over pharmacies this bad. So they took the worst reimbursement of either side and that's what they're reimbursing us at at this point. So things are just getting exponentially worse. Plus, Prime Therapeutics for Blue Cross Blue Shield plans is now using Express Scripts platform and contracts. So even that, we are getting down to, and this is where the monopoly kind of goes. So we're going to send invoices to the entities that oversee these contracts, like OMB, and the, the Department of uh, Defense, which oversees TRICARE, and we're trying to find you know the correct person to send it to, with a copy, by the way, to the Small Business Administration. Because again, talk about paying for something twice. 
if we were getting paid adequately for our businesses, we aren't shut down. We are down for certainly in volume because people aren't getting diagnosed with, with new stuff at this point. They're not going to dentists. But the need for the PBP would have been a whole lot less. I mean, it would just have been a whole different landscape. So if the Small Business Administration does not realize how screwed over their small businesses are with their own federal plans, if nobody's ever made that connection, maybe this project and, you know, sometimes you just do stuff and you hope somebody pays attention. And then some people have in their in their local areas, they'll have a plant or a, um, a certain company that is 80% of the people in that town work there. So they could even send that to the HR and CFO of that company to say, okay, you know, you're not going over claim by claim detail. You're not talking about, you know, reimbursement pricing that's against your contract. You're just saying, look, I fill this many prescriptions. I got paid this. My cost plus $12 a prescription, which is the new NCPA study that just came out. This is what I should be compensated, especially during this pandemic. So, therefore, you owe me XYZ money, and here's where you can mail a check. So, we will see how that goes. And it's up on the website now. We're going to write a letter, kind of an intro letter. I mean, people can do what they want with this project. It, it really doesn't matter. We made it really kind of dummy proof of, uh, or Sh Shannon did anyway, thanks Shannon, on you just had to plug in the numbers and it figures it out for you. So you don't really have to do a lot other than go through your own data. But I think it's something that will, the, the other people I'm going to copy are my congressmen and women. And for state stuff, I'm going to copy my representatives and, quote, leadership. The ultimate bill will be sent to the Agency for Healthcare Administration. So they, they can't ever say they didn't know. Any excuse they've given us up to this point, well, it's contracts, and we're not in private contracts, and we're not any person that just hasn't clued into this monopolistic situation that we're in, and it's no fault of our own. I mean, this is another phrase that we need to keep slinging on back because they're, they're bringing that up for small businesses through no fault of their own had this all happened. So through no fault of our own, are we in a situation where the FTC has allowed all these mergers and vertical integrations? So we're doing the best we can, but we'll be darned if and we're going to lose money. Yes. The math doesn't add up. That's right. It, 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 and that was a great article. And that's another thing that people mm -hmm. need to, the math just doesn't work. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, we'll be promoting it through PUT. We'll be sending out an email, I'm sure, probably, Monique, right? Yes, we will. And that's a really Putting great way. On. You kind of put that the whole background into why this matters. So we started off this conversation talking about plan subsidization, that pharmacies have somehow gone from being these providers, people who provide patient care, they engage in a particular type of medicine therapy. Well, this is medicine therapy. They, that's their modality in healthcare. And now somehow you've gone from being that to being plan subsidizers. This project is all about ending plan subsidizing by pharmacies by calling attention to the problem using invoices. And as you just said, so many of these payers don't know. They really don't understand. And they, and they want to understand. I, I have to believe they want to understand just based on experiences that PUT has had in the past working with employers where 
when you can finally get to that person on the other end and explain to them that, hey, inside this managed care structure, quote unquote, managed care, what's really been happening is you've been paying more, your patients have been paying more, drug prices are going up, and the only people that are profiting from this are the middlemen not the pharmacies and certainly not you. So uh, it is up on our website at truthrx.org, the invoice project. So look for more information about that coming soon. So I think this is a good time to wrap up our first ever broadcast for PUT, and I'm so grateful to all of you. Van uh, was not able to stay on with us, so, uh, so we wish him well, but what I'll do is, as I say goodbye to each of you, just ask you, you know, if you have one piece of advice that you could give the people listening today, what, what is that advice? So Lauren, why don't we start with you? Well, I really think the best advice that I've ever gotten from being on this advocacy journey was from Dave Falk about getting loud because we are the only people that will be able to educate legislators and utilize our patients to get these voices heard because no one else is going to step up for us. That's great. That's and I think that's good advice. I 100% agree. I would say get loud. I would say, yeah, 100% great advice. Uh, Scott, what about you? Um, I guess after my uh, successful compliment from my senator, I would say get get involved with your local state senator or, or delegate and teach them that you're the person that they should go to when this type of legislation comes up. I will be honest with you. I have not worked real hard on John Cosgrove to educate him, but I have been engaged with him. And to a point where I don't even have to explain myself. If a bill or a vote comes up and I message John and tell him to vote a certain way, he will admit that he knows very little about it, but he also knows that if I, he knows me. So if, if I say to vote a certain way, that's the way he votes. And that's just because of the relationship I formed with him. It gave him even enough confidence when these these bills were up for vote in the Senate back in January. I didn't ask him to do this, and I didn't expect him to do this, but he knows that this is my passion. The man stood up and spoke on behalf of the bill, and he was not a patron. He was not a lead sponsor, but he was there to represent me, and that's just because I've engaged him on that level. Yeah, and I think what you're saying about just getting in there, not being afraid, just developing that relationship, I think that's also really important. So that's also really great advice. Thank you, Scott. Don? Well, let me say two things. First of all, in absentia, I'm going to give advice from Owen Sullivan. Okay. <laughs> One of our <laughs> passionate board members who never thought he would ever be speaking, going to the, his capital, is give me 10 minutes or give me 15 minutes in an elevator in a room with some, you know, person and believe me, just after that, their mind will be blown. But that's, that would be from Owen. My probably advice would be, and what we're seeing is it just takes one. 
one meaning the beginning. You know, Scott was involved in VPHA and has corralled some people. Deb is like a one-woman show in Minnesota, but she's corralled people. Dave Strauss in, in Wisconsin started a movement there. We had a core group of six of us in Florida that are, are really trying to change things here. And same thing with Illinois. They've got a core group of six people. But if you're listening to this, you're like, I'm the only person in my state. Oh, trust me, if we have to cold call pharmacies for you, with you, to get them involved, we will. Having half a dozen people is helpful, but even starting with one is, is where you need to start. Yeah, absolutely. So Shannon, uh, Shannon would say one voice is louder than a crowd. So I think that's incredibly important. My own advice, I'm gonna throw some in myself, is for everybody, is not to ever give up. Sometimes you have to say the message a few times. And I say that for myself as an example, because the very first time I heard about this issue, my pharmacist, uh, who was not my pharmacist at the time, she came to see me at my business. I used to have a PR agency. She came to see us and she was talking about this whole thing that was happening with PBMs. And she kept talking about CVS and I could not get my head around it. And I remember I actually said to her, are you sure? Because CVS, they seem like really nice people. And the fact that she did not get up and walk out the door after I said that to this day is still a miracle. And it was through her work and through talking to you, Dawn, and, and working with Scott and continuing work with all the board members where I've, every day I'm learning something new and you know expanding my own experience with what's been happening. That's what's allowed me to be able to do the work that I'm doing. And why that matters is because I'm not a pharmacist, I'm a patient. But I promise you, I think like every legislator thinks, or generally every legislator, I think like plan payers think, if you can get even one person to just really get it, that person will go on to tell so many other people. And we've seen that over and over. And I think that's why you see in this day and age now, people know what a PBM is. More people know what that is. More people have heard about that than certainly did a few years ago. I know when I was first starting out, no one had ever heard of that. And now you have so many journalists covering it. There's so much attention on it. The next step is for the attention to start to flip over into change, but at least we're on that pathway and that's really exciting. So I wanna thank all of you for taking time out tonight to be on the podcast. You're all gonna come back if for no other reason than because you are board members and you're amazing. But thank you so much for being here and for everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. Again, this is the podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Take care and be safe.